It's widely acknowledged that as life expectancy has increased, the number of cases of dementia has exploded. But several recent studies have actually revealed a decrease in the incidence or prevalence of dementia, and they may carry lessons about prevention. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Eric Larson, the Vice President for Research at the Group Health Research Institute in Seattle, and a Clinical Professor of Medicine and Health Services at the University of Washington. Dr. Larson has co-authored a perspective article on new insights into the dementia epidemic. Dr. Larson, how big is the dementia epidemic today, and how great a burden is it on the U.S. healthcare system? It's a large epidemic. Worldwide, we estimate that there may be more than 35 million persons affected. The Alzheimer's Association states that around 5 million are currently affected in the U.S. If you look at estimates going forward by 2050, the number worldwide would increase to around 115 million. And that's driven by the fact that 4% of the population in developed nations is over 80 now, and that's expected to rise to 10% in 2050. And by that year, the cost of caring for Americans with dementia is predicted to top $1 trillion. The key background driving these numbers are the fact that dementia is a condition which is rare from a public health perspective before the age of 65. But the prevalence of dementia, meaning the proportion of the people with the disease, goes up dramatically with age. It nearly doubles every five years of age after 65. So by the time a person reaches the age range 85 to 90, about 30% will have problems associated with dementia. From 90 to 95, about half will have dementia. And above 95, more than two-thirds have symptoms and signs of dementia. So as life expectancies rise and populations age worldwide, each of these three groups is growing with the oldest old, the group that's always growing the most. So what has become unusual for decades ahead of us is now going to become very usual. And then, of course, most persons who develop these signs and symptoms become dependent, and many will require more or less constant care. Some will live two decades after their diagnosis. So the burden is not just on the healthcare system, but also on individuals with dementia, their family, their caregivers, and our society at large. But you describe in your article several studies that have shown a declining incidence or prevalence of dementia among people born later in the first half of the 20th century. Are those results surprising, given what you've just said? We weren't surprised, but what caused us to do this research was our curiosity, because there's some controversy about whether the rates are going down, and that had to do a lot with projections. We'd done some work in this area, so we were pleased that the trend of opinion was moving in the direction we were finding ourselves. So my colleague, Ken Lango, did one of the first studies in the health and retirement study, and then the other studies started to come along. So We have the English and the Rotterdam study, which I think allows us to be able to look with much more precision at the rates. And when we look with the kind of precision that those studies offered, we were able to see that the rates were coming down. Plus, we were able to see that even with very precise diagnoses like they had in those studies, that you could isolate factors like education and vascular risk factors like smoking rates and treatment of hypertension and hyperlipidemia. These were suggested in some of the earlier studies, which had much less detail. But now what we see, I think, is a really interesting confluence between what I would call personal health and public health. And it also begins to counteract worries we had about rising life expectancies and aging populations worldwide. So my view of the results is this is a reason for optimism. 
But I hasten to add that at the same time, I think we mentioned this in the paper, that we need to be aware that there are dramatic changes and in increases in obesity and rates of diabetes that can threaten to reverse the gains that we've had in the last century. And especially those are predicted to impact the aging brain. So the diabetes and obesity epidemics really have not reached the age when people are most at risk for dementia, but it's probably just a matter of time. So to help more people avoid dementia, we're also going to have to find better ways of preventing obesity and reducing the epidemic of diabetes, because these will lead to probably greater risk for dementia in the future. And it's also important, I might add, that certain ethnic and racial minorities who lack access to education and health care are among those that are most seriously affected by the obesity and diabetes epidemic. As luck would have it, though, I think that the things we've discovered that might be helpful in preventing dementia jibe with preventing an obesity and diabetes. So exercise, diet, education, treating hypertension, quitting smoking. And equally important, I think, is we need to discover more effective ways to reverse these trends because right now we're really lacking in effective ways to counteract the trends. You mentioned education, which does seem to be a key factor in protecting people against dementia. How exactly does education change the risk of dementia? That's a very good question. You know, we've known for a long time that education indirectly improves health probably even more so than healthcare does. We know, for example, that this effective education is particularly striking with regard to a person's mother. So very early in life, having an educated mother confers benefits on you later on. This is from international work more than just in the U.S., but it's also true here. So in some ways, spending a dollar on education may deliver more healthcare benefit than spending a dollar on healthcare. And in the case of dementia, I think the relationship has become more and more clear over the last 20 to 30 years. We have a hypothesis called brain reserve hypothesis, which has guided epidemiologic research for at least a couple of decades. And what this says is that the intellectual development and challenges experienced across the whole lifespan may increase the brain's ability to tolerate so-called age-related changes and disease-related pathology. So we know that in early life, education and good nutrition and good social well-being increases brain reserve in development. And what happens is if you have more brain reserve to draw on, which we don't need necessarily all of our life, but we can maintain our brain function further into old age and essentially forestalling the clear symptoms or signs of dementia. We also know that as you continue to challenge your brain, through continued education or work complexity, social network, leisure activities, you can build on your brain reserve or maintain that brain reserve with less decline over time. Some researchers also suggest that lifestyle and social factors are involved. So what kinds of factors are those and how are they protective? Overall, they're really common sense kinds of factors, quitting smoking, having regular physical activity, better diets, and societal wealth are all protective. Quitting smoking reduces the vascular risk and results in essentially healthier blood vessels and longer lives. Regular physical activity and better diets also lower vascular risk. And societal wealth is correlated with better health and well-being and especially with more successful, if you will, aging. Prosperity that's widely experienced throughout a society probably has a beneficial effect on one's ability to age well from a brain aging perspective. And this is from a number of 
longitudinal and cross-sectional studies in Europe especially. You mentioned vascular risk, and some have suggested that the reduced incidence of dementia that we're now seeing may in fact be specific to vascular dementia. Does vascular dementia present differently from other types of dementia? This is a really good question. I started working in this field back in the 70s, and in those days we taught that there were two types of dementia, so-called vascular dementia, or some people called it multi-infarct dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. But over the decades, as we've begun to study the population where the greatest percentage of people have dementia, we found that so-called mixed dementia was much more prevalent than we ever thought. People don't just have one or the other form, but it's very common in community-based studies like ours to see signs of vascular dementia, Alzheimer's degeneration, Lewy body degeneration, all present to varying degrees in the same person, even in people who die when they're not demented. So we think that mixed dementia is common, and we also think that even in Alzheimer's disease, vascular risk can play a role. In fact, one of our neuropathology colleagues demonstrated a few years ago that microvascular infarcts, which they call MVIs, occur in our group health patients with Alzheimer's disease. And they do explain both the risk and severity of a person's dementia in typical Alzheimer's disease. And we know, of course, as you imply in your question, that good preventive care will reduce the vascular dementia rates and stroke rates and so forth. But we also believe that improved prevention by reducing vascular risk probably affects all types of dementia, including Alzheimer's disease. So a recent example was a paper the New England Journal published this past summer showing that in the same population that I work on here in Seattle, that all levels of blood glucose, the association of dementia risk increase. So What's important about that paper is there was no threshold blood glucose level where suddenly you weren't worse off if you were somehow lower than that level. But in general, a lower blood glucose level was always better in the study that my colleague Paul Crane published. If we're not taking medications, we can basically rely on homeostasis to work and work on diet and exercise and so forth. And what this suggests to me is that there are systemic factors that confer a risk for a strongly age-related disease like Alzheimer's and dementia in general. And I anticipated that in the next decade or so, we're going to be testing this and looking for many new ways and other ways to safely reduce risk. So if most cases of dementia involve a mixture of Alzheimer's, vascular, other degenerative factors, how much is reducing vascular risk going to help the overall situation? I think that's a question we're all asking, and it's hard to know what the answer is because Fortunately, I think, it's not just vascular risk, but there are other colleagues. One of my co-authors on the perspective that New England Journal is publishing, Christine Yaffe, has written extensively about vascular factors that might reduce risk, but also other factors, and she calls them non-pharmacologic factors in some of her papers. So in addition to the things I've mentioned, like better education and treatment of vascular risk, she points that preventing or avoiding depression, better diets, emphasizing fruit and vegetable or so-called Mediterranean diet, recognizing and treating sleep disorders could play a role in cognitive decline and other age-related maladies. So the bottom line to your question is we don't know, but I think we'll discover that the reduction of vascular risk along with other kind of general health maintenance or health promotion is going to play a role in moving the age at which people develop these diseases closer to the age at which they die. And finally, what about preventing Alzheimer's disease? Are there promising directions being studied? It's really a great question. 
we're pretty sure that exercise and better control of vascular risk and education, continued engagement, all the things I've been talking about can somewhat delay the onset of dementia in populations, if you will. The big question, and I think it's still unanswerable, is can an age-related condition like neurodegeneration and dementia and Alzheimer's disease that seems so inevitably be truly prevented. And by that, I mean, can we make it go away the way we make illnesses through public health approaches caused by infectious diseases like polio and diseases related to poor sanitation? And that's been the traditional area of epidemiology and prevention. And in the case of Alzheimer's disease, for the last couple of decades, at least, the research has focused on the amyloid cascade. And I think this will continue because it's an area of great discovery. But to date, we've not found anything that seems to truly reverse that process and, importantly, that's safe. And so there are legitimate questions about alternative pathways being involved. And we see in the field people arguing a bit about, is it amyloid or is it tau or what is it? And in spite of the arguments, I say the basic question is, is there any place along these pathways that you can find something that can disrupt the pathway and reduce the risk without causing harm elsewhere. And that's the challenge, and I think it remains the challenge. What we're learning, though, is that changes in the brain occur well before the manifestation of these diseases are clinically evident. And we've learned about some very obvious genetic associations with the early life forms of dementia. But for late-life dementias, it's looking to me anyway like the recently discovered genetic associations don't seem to map as closely to amyloid as did the associations discovered in the very rare and early onset cases, and that sort of helped confirm the enthusiasm for the amyloid hypothesis. So what we see in the neuropathology studies that we've done here in Seattle is that there's these variety of microscopic degenerative changes in the brain, which, in my opinion, make it unlikely that a single medication could prevent them all without having harm or unintended effects elsewhere. So one of the points of our paper is that a better or an equally important approach is to think of this set of conditions, the dimensions of aging, like the other chronic diseases related to aging. Maybe we can't prevent the condition completely by finding some magic pill, like a vaccine for polio, that would make the disease disappear. But we can continue to look for ways to reduce the burdens of these common conditions that occur at both the personal and public health levels. Thank you, Dr. Larson.